Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you are having a good day so far. And for those of us who are listening, living in the United States, uh, happy Thanksgiving holiday. But then again, no matter where we live in the world, we all should be um, thankful for for whatever it is we have in our life. And we should also be thankful that we are... are um, still alive during this time of uncertainty. Yes, it is a um, scary um, period of time in our lives. However, we all have to find ways to forge ahead and keep um, a light at the, un- at the end of the tunnel um, still visible because um, in the end, um, we will come through this um, hopefully stronger, but that's also up to us as a, not only as a society, but as a, a, as a world. Uh, we all have to um, make decisions that will not only uh, benefit just ourselves, but benefit uh, the cause of uh, the, the greater of our greater communities as a whole. In other words, we must um, not live in a live in a world where it's just I, me, myself. It has to be us, we, ourselves. You know, it's interesting. You know, to think that you know Thanksgiving is a time where we always assume that we just celebrate on Thanksgiving in the United States in November. Uh, we should remember that uh, Thanksgiving was actually declared a federal holiday in 1863. But prior to that time, people in what was then colonial America or in the early days when we, after we had officially separated from England, that people celebrated Thanksgiving in a multitude of uh, different ways. In other words, they didn't always have to revolve celebrating Thanksgiving around the dinner table and having uh, turkey and other um, side food, food side items to go with it. Uh, in, col- in the early days of uh, Virginia's existence, um, when it was colonial um, in uh, colonial America, many people in Virginia celebrated Thanksgiving um, in the aftermath of a drought coming to an end, or they would celebrate a good harvest as a means of being thankful. So let's just remember that people before us found other ways to celebrate Thanksgiving without always having to sit down and eat turkey and other um, food items that uh, we often associate with when it comes to Thanksgiving. So um, here we are. Um, It's good to be back on the air after a few days of um, of uh, not being on the air. I, I did miss you all, uh, but then again, I'm glad to be back on the air to talk uh, about uh, John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. What we're going to be discussing in this uh, session is um, how Francis Marion um, goes forward with his mission to um, to keep the um, flame for um independence and liberty alive in South Carolina, but how he can go about ensuring that the, um, that the uh, British objective is not to go past South Carolina. In other words, he's got to find um, every way or strategy to um, ensure that the uh, fighting stays within South Carolina, but we're also going to learn more about why South Carolina has become such a hotbed, and it's become at this point now, in 1780, the focal point of the revolution itself. So our leadoff bonus question is going to be the following. In the aftermath of debacles at Camden and Fishing Creek, 
What would Francis Marion's objective revolve around? Well, here we go. He would, his objective was to help oversee South Carolina become liberated from British control by instituting irregular fighting measures. As I mentioned from the previous uh, podcast introduction, uh, what was known as guerrilla warfare. And of course, we must remember he didn't invent guerrilla warfare, but he took the tactics that um, he learned while fighting in the French and Indian War and now um, we'll use those um, new tactics in combating um, British um, troops um, in um, all sorts of skirmishes in other, to um, catch them off guard to where uh, the fighting is going to stay within uh, the confines of just South Carolina. So, yes, his objective is to help oversee the people of South Carolina become liberated from British control by instituting irregular fighting measures with the purpose of keeping redcoats or loyalist forces confined to South Carolina without further northward advancement. By August of 1780, South Carolina has become the primary focal point of military operations for the American Revolution. So, in other words, Marion has got to find a way to keep the British from advancing north into North Carolina and eventually into Virginia. If he doesn't, then the British will have achieved their objective, and who knows, our uh, cause for independence will probably, could very well become extinguished. So, was South Carolina in major turmoil? Yes. If we didn't think it was in major turmoil, then something's not right. South Carolina society had unfortunately endured countless conflicts from within its own state, long before shots were fired in April 1775 against British troops at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. So sometimes uh, conflicts from within just don't happen overnight. They've been brewing. They often are situations where the problems have been brewing for years and over time when resolutions aren't um, made to stop the um, issues from getting out of control. It's just a matter of time before the uh, straw breaks the camel's back. So from April of 1775 to June 1778, the southern states, a.k.a. the south, had been unaffected by the war. So really from 1775 to 1778, the fighting is occurring up north, most notably in Bunker Hill, Massachusetts, Fort Ticonderoga in Saratoga, New York, um, to uh, Brandywine, Pennsylvania, and uh, Trenton, New Jersey. So by June of 1778, the last major battle in the northern campaign um, has uh, taken place at Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey. And for those of you who are new to my um, podcast, uh, what's essential about Monmouth uh, Courthouse, New Jersey, was that at that battle, James Monroe, who would become a, a future United States president, he was serving in the Continental Army. He had a very uh, distinguished um, war record uh, from serving from 1776 up until uh, the start of 1779. James Monroe played a vital part at Monmouth Courthouse, uh, in large part because a, a fellow by the name of General Charles Lee had purposely um, 
had purposely allowed for his troops to uh, retreat. And when Washington intervenes, he pretty much uh, barks orders at them to get back in line. And, if, and of course, he um, lets Charles Lee have it. In other words, he pretty much uh, gives Charles Lee a, a rightful and proper third-degree lecture on, um, on ineffective uh, leadership management. So James Monroe steps in and is able to um, bring a unit of uh, troops over to a, a proper uh, position setting to where um, an ambush would be was prevented and it resulted in saving George Washington's life. So if it had not been for James Monroe, George Washington probably would have lost his life. So another uh, bonus question here is the following. As the 1770s were coming to an end, did the British government see its money supply become nearly depleted? Yes. And why is that important? Well, you know, it does take money to fund a war, and, you know, money doesn't always last forever. In other words, it doesn't grow on trees. Um, whatever resources you have today might not be around tomorrow or let alone a couple of months from now. So given that the Revolutionary War itself no longer revolved just around fighting uh, those in, you know, what he called Americans in, uh, in America, the conflict had now grown to include France and Spain. Remember, after the Battle of Saratoga, the French were finally convinced under Benjamin Franklin's leadership to uh, become allies with us. And then Spain obviously has some territory in, uh, in America, most notably around the Mississippi River and what we now know as present-day Florida. But Spain um, is also uh, engaged in some form of hostility with England. So England's really um, in an uphill uh, battle now, not just with Americans, but with two other uh, powerful uh, European nations. So Parliament decides to vote on one last measure to end the war by focusing its resources in the American South. And it does seem like a smart move, though, and we're going to find out here now. The Southern Campaign would become known as the Southern Strategy. It was put into play by Sir Henry Clinton, King George III, and Lord Germain, who would be the British Secretary of State for America. What was the Southern Campaign strategy um, designed um, in terms of its purpose? Well, the plan would begin with taking over Georgia, and where Patriot support was the lowest per all 13 colonies, and and I would say that that is uh, very true in large part because um, Georgia was, um, for, for one, it was the, the most remote of all 13 states. But even um, when the Declaration of Independence or when the talk on separation from England was in its early stages, there were no delegates in attendance at the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia in 1774 from Georgia. Why so? Georgia was fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation. If you're fighting a war with an Indian nation and you aren't showing any interest in separating from England, who do you need assistance from? You need assistance from England. And what is that going to require needing? Arms, all, sort, all kinds of ammunition and arms to take up a, a fight against um, an Indian um, nation that is uh, encroaching upon their uh, territory. 
But of course that would all change uh, thanks to a fellow named Lyman Hall. And if it hadn't been for him, I don't believe uh, Georgia uh, would have even uh, come along with uh, independence. But even by 1778, Georgia is still um, probably Georgia is still at the bottom in terms of having the lowest um, patriot support for independence. So after Georgia, then the objective is to march north into uh, the Carolinas and Virginia while sending forces to advance further north where Washington's forces were um, currently located, um, especially within uh, New York and all. So this, this is a unique uh, strategy right here, folks. Now, as for um, American loyalist uh, exiles, many um, exiles who, um, who were loyalists fled to uh, places like London, uh, even went as north into uh, Canada, and those um, who were loyalists, who were even um, slaves, actually went as far away as uh, Sierra Leone and in, um, in Africa. So there were thousands of uh, people who were loyal to the crown who actually were willing to leave. So those who were in London were firmly convinced that the South wasn't adamant about independence, unlike New Englanders whose um, views were the exact opposite. Parliament sought advice of loyalist exiles from America and agreed having loyal subjects or supporters to the crown take up arms against the rebels from within their home states. So in other words, here's what the, basically what the British are wanting to do. They don't believe in sending men from England which, yes, would probably cost money. So why not take up, why not have those, why not have people who are uh, loyal to the crown from within their home state be the ones to take up arms and wage war on the rebels with, and uh, hopefully in the, with the objective of ending this conflict altogether. Well, here's a bo another bonus question right here. Uh, would the Southern strategy get started on the right track for England? Yes, the first objective by taking control of Georgia in December of 1778 when the Savannah fell. And remember, folks, there's no Atlanta, Georgia at this time. Uh, Georgia, uh, the capital of Georgia is Savannah in 1778. Uh, Atlanta, where uh, present-day Atlanta, Georgia is located, uh, that's still at this time still considered um, Indian territory. So when the fall of Savannah takes place, this enables British leaders like Sir Henry Clinton to um, proceed forward in marching northward into South Carolina without resistance from rebel forces. Now, after 1776, when separation from England had become officially declared by means of the Declaration of Independence, Charleston, being the capital of South Carolina, loses its sense of military preparedness. In other words, okay, no fighting is going on here, although there was um, an attempt in 1776, not long after the Declaration of Independence was signed by the British to invade, but the uh, invasion was thwarted. After 1776, South most South Carolinians um, are focused on other things. They... Um, 
they've already signed this, the men have already signed the document, they've, they feel like they've achieved some form of peace, and so why uh, focus on any kind of military preparedness when all the fighting is going to be up north? Well, eventually it will backfire, but at the same time, there are going to be many in South Carolina who, are, who will be okay with the British taking control of the city come May 12th of 1780 after the six-week siege comes to an end within the Battle of uh, Charleston. And to make things better for Charleston at this time, if you're a loyalist, loyal to the crown, you're going to actually be okay with this. Charleston is home to many loyalist supporters. So they welcome the British takeover. This, the fall of Charleston, uh, if you're not a loyalist, and if you're that worried about South Carolina, South Carolina's well-being and that of the capital, the fall of Charleston led to uh, Governor John Rutledge's um, going into exile. And it wasn't just somewhere else in South Carolina. He literally had to go as far north as into North Carolina to avoid being captured by the British. So Governor Rutledge's um, departure meant that civil government no longer existed in South Carolina. So it's one thing to all of a sudden folks not have a government that's uh, not functioning, but, but we can attribute this to uh, a foreign invasion that is also being supported from within by those who choose to remain loyal to the crown. Many citizens of South Carolina would go about taking oaths of allegiance to the crown, whereas those who didn't take up arms were required to return to their homes and remain neutral. This sounds like a, uh, a decent compromise, but at the same time, even if you do not um, take up arms with the crown, you're not guaranteed 100% uh, um, safety. In other words, you never know when, if, when uh, one of your neighbors could turn their backs upon you and um, rat you out to where the British could um, confiscate your property and let alone, um, let alone hang you just for not being um, loyal to the crown. So basically, if you're neutral, it's, that's fine, but it doesn't guarantee your uh, safety. Here's a, another question right here for you all. W given that John Rutledge has fled into exile in North Carolina, or I should say Governor John Rutledge, and I should note that the Rutledges are a very prominent family in South Carolina. Uh, other prominent families at this time, um, not, besides the Rutledges, were the um, Draytons, um, the Middletons, um, the Pinckneys, and then you have um, a fellow by the name of Henry Lawrence who marries into one of those families. So... Um, it's fair to say that those families in South Carolina um, are not just uh, powerful families. They also perhaps represent a form of what we now know as old money. Well, besides Governor Rutledge's um, fleeing into exile, other high-profiled South Carolina statesmen also um, were, in, were um, subjected to um, doing things that we might think of now as unbecoming, but at the time... If they maybe if they hadn't done what they had done, they could have probably um, run the risk of being hung uh, or sent back to England to be um, 
tried for uh, not being loyal to the crown. So other high-profile statesmen like um, Henry Middleton, who was the former president of the Continental Congress, to Charles Pinckney, who was the first president of the South Carolina Senate, to Daniel Hughie, who, who was a high-ranking member on Governor Rutledge's council, all submitted to royal authority, or let alone they uh, sought British protection. And it's fair to say now that submission to royal authority has become the new norm in South Carolina society, especially around 1780. It's a scary thing that's happening, but the reality is, is that um, it is a, um, it's now the new norm, and now we have to wonder who's going to be left to um, change things if, if we don't have, for one, if, there's, if the governor has fled um, in exile and others have um, taken up oaths of allegiance to the crown. I mean, who, who's going to step up and, um, and take a stand and say enough is enough? Well, prior to departing Charleston for New York, Sir Henry Clinton revisits the issue of loyalty and neutrality. This is going to be something that um, I think uh, never should have been done. You know, it's one thing to um, implement a policy. Yes, it's okay to revisit a policy and make changes that could be deemed necessary, but as we all know, when new changes are made, sometimes it's for the better and sometimes it's, it's, for the, it's not for the better. What happens here that involving Sir Henry Clinton is going to be something that will backfire. So now many of you are wondering, is there a decision that's going to be made here at some point that's going to backfire on the British? We're going to find that out here right now. So, yes, Sir Henry Clinton revisits the issue of loyalty and neutrality. But what terms of condition concerned him? It had to do with parole status of civilian Whigs whom had already agreed to refrain from taking up arms against the crown. Now, what does parole refer to in 18th century military terms? Now, of course, in today's time, when you hear someone, when, you, when we hear that so-and-so is eligible for parole, that means that they are eligible to be released from jail. Well, in 18th century, the term basically means the following. It was where a captured enemy who had served, who was uh, in the hands of the um, opposition, would be released under the condition that he would not take up arms until becoming exchanged for another prisoner. This was a restriction on one's ability to fight. And more often than not in 18th century times, especially during the American Revolution, prisoner exchanges would be often based upon military rank. So, for example, if the British had three um, of our men in their uh, possession, in other words, let's say they had, a, had two colonels and a lieutenant, and, le and let's say that also included seven privates, let's say we have... Let's say we, the Americans have either the same number or something that's close to it. If neither side has shown any aggression towards the other, then the, then the greater the likelihood of a prisoner exchange being able to take place. 
And once those prisoners are released on both sides, then, then they can resume um, taking up arms. So in other words, if I released John Smith from the American side, if I was on the British side and I released John Smith on the American side, but the Americans didn't release um, Tom Jones on the British side and he was of the same rank as John Smith, then John Smith cannot, um, John Smith will still be required to take up, take an oath not to take up arms until uh, Mr. Smith or until Mr. Jones gets released on his end. And if that was violated, um, then, um, then obviously uh, consequences were, um, were um, taken into play, which would have meant um, um, hanging, hanging by death by hanging. So the bottom line is these uh, parole uh, circumstances, or let alone situations for their time, were um, very uh, serious matters that um, obviously could not be um, taken lightly under uh, no um, circumstances uh, whatsoever for their time. So, um, moving on now to the um, next um, segment of our um, podcast here. You know... um, Clinton, uh, here's where the um, biggest problem that um, Henry Clinton um, puts himself into, but he does it for all the wrong reasons. The reason why he's revisiting this issue of loyalty and neutrality, primarily involving the uh, Whigs, is that Clinton believes existing agreement that was already in play was too lenient towards the Whigs. In other words, uh, they would just be allowed to go back to their farms and uh, refrain from taking up arms. He goes about introducing parole for, parole reform by demanding that previous or let alone former parolees have their rights restored, which meant signing an oath of allegiance to the crown. So, in other words, you can have your rights restored, but you will. Um, but the only way it's going to happen is by by uh, signing an oath that you will be loyal to the crown. And the deadline for this was to do so by June 20th of 1780. And failure to do so meant civilian Whigs would become enemies to the king. Clinton believes that if these uh, civilian Whigs sign this oath, it's going to deter all future um, conflict from within the state. He believes that he will. He believes that he could even achieve peace in his time. In other words, he thinks he's appeasing the Whigs, but he. It turns out he's not. He's basically now forcing those who were either neutral or those who were against the crown, who had already shown signs of um, of uh, non-aggression. He's now um, putting them in a more vulnerable position. So, is it now fair to say that this is uh, going to backfire on Clinton? Yes, it will. In the end, South Carolina would see more backcountry people take up arms against the British because of Clinton's improper parole reform measure. So, not long after Clinton issues this proclamation, uh, people start coming out from the woodworks and basically say, now, hey, you've just taken this... um, to a whole different level for all the wrong reasons. 
and the worst is going to be yet to come. Here's a bonus question right here. Would the, bonus question, uh, would the Revolutionary War in South Carolina become one where all acts of brutality, would the war in South Carolina become one where all acts of brutality were confined to a single rogue group? No. Rogue meaning uh, an outside or um, group that um, is bent on destruction. But the answer, it's not confined. The, con the conflict, or let alone acts of hostility, were not confined to a single rogue group. The majority of all brutalities took that took place went about involving Americans fighting amongst one another from within the state. So here we've been led to believe for a long time that the um, hostilities and um, killings involved British upon Americans or Americans upon British. No, the problems involved the people from within the state. And the atrocities ranged from killing those whom lied sick in their beds to soldiers waving the white flag of truce whom were cut down by swords. I think that's pretty barbaric right there. It's one thing to wave a flag of surrender, but it did happen on the actual battlefield. As a matter of fact, it happened at the Battle of the Waxhaws, where a general on the American side named Abraham Buford, for whom Buford, Georgia is named after, he um, waved a flag of truce in the hopes that uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton and his men would come to a halt and negotiate a surrender. Well, it turns out that Tarleton and his men kept moving forward to the point where they took their, where they were moving by for, by horse or horses, I should say. Tarleton was a famous uh, cavalry dragoon raider, and he and some of his men actually took their swords and cut the arms off of uh, Patriot soldiers. I hate to tell you this, people, but it did happen. That's how barbaric um, fighting was, most notably now in the South. So the rally cry after that battle became the following. Remember the wax haws in terms of how um, vicious and brutal the outcome was, even in the midst of trying to surrender peacefully. So it's, you know, we could say that it's, an, that it's the American Revolution, but I almost have to say that these conflicts now from within involving the people of South Carolina, it's like a mini civil war now. It's not the civil war that we will know come 1861, but this is a civil war from within the state of South Carolina. The civil war from within the state is not based on geographic boundaries or political philosophy, but rather upon people's personal decisions for whom to side with when taking up arms. In other words, are you going to take up arms with the patriots, or are you going to take up arms by being a redcoat or a, a loyalist or Tory. The decisions were based upon people's uh, personal grievances and ambitions for revenge. And uh, what's a good example? Well, for example, if a man's horse was stolen by a Whig, he became a Tory. And if someone on the Tory side had been passed over for a military advancement, then that man would uh, defect uh, the Tories and join the Whigs. So in other words, the slightest incidents, 
could um, fuel the fire in ways that most of us could never imagine. Yes, stealing a man's horse was pretty much stealing his livelihood, but would it, but would it have been necessary enough to want that to want the individual, or let alone to require the individual, to all of a sudden defect? So, in other words, it doesn't take much for people to betray one another, but it also goes to show that people aren't willing to sit down and talk things out. What are they resorting to? Yes, they're resorting to violence, but they're resorting to violence that's based upon the following. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, okay? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. It's scary, but that's, that's the kind of extremism that was taking place at this time. Now, prior to the American Revolution, lawlessness was the norm in the Carolina backcountry. That doesn't come as a shocker. The feuds and the conflicts among the neighbors would usually determine which side one chose during the Revolution. That's not a surprise either, too. You know, it's, I think it's fair to say that these conflicts that are going on or these internal problems that have become extremes, it almost reminds me of the Hatfields and McCoys. That kind of um, struggle where, um, in this case, where two families who are related to one another um, were not looking for any kind of resolution. All they cared about is going after one another and um, simply just making life miserable. Uh, the next thing uh, we'll talk about here is going to be the uh, following. Um, is it fair to say that even religious tension or matters involving religious um, what do you call it, religious sects or uh, religious or Protestant denominations alone, did that um, lead to um, a good deal of internal strife in South Carolina? Uh, yes. Presbyterian and Baptists were um, the two biggest uh, dissenters, or let alone religious dissenting groups in South Carolina. And if there was one thing they actually did have in common in terms of what they were against was opposing what the Anglican Church had been allowed to do, and that was to uh, not only, um, what do you call it, not only oppose those of um, different religious um, beliefs, but they, uh, the Anglican Church had primary authority over um, everyone else. So in other words, if you didn't adhere to the Anglican Church, guess where your taxes went? It still went to the Church of England. And the um, Church of England itself basically controlled South Carolina, just like it did in Virginia. But the ironic thing is outside of the Church of England, even Presbyterians and Baptists don't like each other. So it's one thing to um, be against the Church of England, but that doesn't mean that all the other non-Anglican sects are in 100% harmony or let alone um, in complete unison all the time. So uh, another bonus question here is this. If there is one concern that Whigs and Tories actually could agree upon, that is Whigs and Tories from, that is the people of South Carolina, if there is actually one thing they could agree upon, what did it pertain to? Potential Indian uprisings in the back country to facing slave insurrections in the low country. 
those are the two groups of people that um, that um, that people of uh, the white Caucasian race in South Carolina are afraid of at this time. It's they're afraid of uprisings. They're afraid of what will happen if arms get placed into the wrong hands of people, and and will take whatever conflicts are in existence and will become so escalated to the point where civilization as we know it in South Carolina just might be annihilated. What is the low country exactly? Yeah, and think about it, you're, the greater uh, population of uh, slaves in South Carolina is in the uh, low country. The low country is the area that's within 50 miles of the Atlantic coast. It's adjacent to the ports towns of Charleston and Georgetown. And Georgetown is on the outskirts of uh, Florence, in case any of y'all are wondering um, where that's located. Whereas in the back country, or what we know is the upper country of South Carolina, all of that is uh, well west. What we now think of as like Columbia, um, you know, Greenville, Spartanburg, all that area. That's uh, pretty much upper country. So is uh, Sir Henry Clinton now still around? Because, you know, he's the one that made the decision that is going to backfire in terms of uh, forcing uh, Whigs who had already agreed to not take up arms against the crown now to be forced against their own will to take an oath to the crown. Who's going um, to uh, be in charge now on the British side? Well, his name's going to be Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis. Eventually, he would become Lord Cornwallis. But would British forces under Cornwallis's reign seek out Indians, slaves, and Tories in mobilizing their efforts to quash further rebel uprisings within South Carolina? No. <laughs> this is a bad decision on Cornwallis's part. He ends up using a majority of the slaves as laborers and messengers he becomes very hesitant with allowing Tory sympathizers within the state to fight. I guess he's too afraid that if he puts too much trust in these sympathizers that it could backfire on him. Perhaps he's simply too afraid that if he gives um, local Tories power on the battlefield that it might uh, conflict with, um, with how um, strategies for fighting the rebels could come into play. And then, you know, think about it, in the far uh, northwestern part of the uh, state of uh, South Carolina, you've got, that's where your Indian tribes are, most notably the Cherokees. He pay, Cornwallis pays very little attention to these tribes whom already, had bore, whom already uh, bore resentment to uh, patriots, or let alone Americans. The bottom line is Cornwallis um, really... Um, shot himself in the foot right here. If he could have mobilized these forces, you know, yes, many British uh, forces or let alone um, leaders who, uh, military leaders who came over to colonial America during the revolution, they did find ways to get slaves to uh, come over to fight for them. Of course, they would say to them, if you join us, we'll give you your freedom. But what I see here is that if Cornwallis had allowed for slaves to fight he could have also found ways to get these slaves to um, provide him with intelligence on, um, on where um, 
they could go to launch uh, surprise attacks on plantations or let alone um, launch a, a raid um, attack that would have resulted in capturing the master or let alone the, the master's family. Uh, you know, yes, it might be hesitant to want to arm uh, someone whom you don't feel comfortable with in terms of giving them um, a rifle or a musket, but let alone if you want to um, have the upper hand, sometimes you've got to uh, be willing to uh, do things that are different. But the bottom line is General Corn, Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis, his um, ineffectiveness in not allowing um, Indians, Tories, and slaves to do more for him will uh, be a great um, detrimental blow to um, long-term success in getting the upper hand in uh, South Carolina. How would South Carolina go about being commanded from a military perspective, especially on the Patriot side, given that Francis Marion, he already has, he's already in command with nearly 200-some militiamen, most notably from, um, from the Williamsburg Township, Witherspoon's Ferry area. But, as, but it's fair to say that Marion alone can't do all this fighting in South Carolina, even with 200-some militiamen. So how is South Carolina from a Patriot side going to be commanded? Well, South Carolina is going to have three military leaders at the helm, one of them being Francis Marion himself. But they're all going to work in different uh, parts of the state. Marion will work in the eastern third of the state, which will include the entire low country and certain portions of the back country. Then there's a fellow by the name of Thomas Sumter who will handle the middle third of South Carolina. And then um, Andrew Pickens will lead partisans in the northwestern third of South Carolina closer to the Indian Territory. So for Andrew Pickens, he would lead... Um, military men or including militia forces into the areas that we know as uh, Greenville, Union, Spartanburg, um, Rock Hill. Those are areas in the northwestern uh, part of uh, South Carolina. And it turns out there is a place in South Carolina. Um, matter of fact, all three of those men, uh, Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, and Andrew Pickens, uh, there are places in South Carolina named Marion, Sumter, and Pickens named in honor of those three um, individuals. Here's a good question for you all, a good bonus question that's going to, um, that, has, that is directly connected to um, the style of fighting in South Carolina that, um, that even has its name uh, prevalent today for the University of South Carolina. What is a Gamecock? A Gamecock is a rooster that's bred for fighting. Thomas Sumter earned the nickname of uh, Carolina Gamecock due to his tense fighting style against British troops who burned his house to the ground during the war. And ironically, the British would be the ones to give him the nickname of Gamecock. So there you have it, folks, uh, the South Carolina uh, Gamecocks, named after the style of fighting that took place on our side, being the Americans in the Revolutionary War. 
Now, as I mentioned from the other uh, day's podcast about how Horatio, General Horatio Gates had made you know, such a fool out of himself and left the battlefield in disgrace after um, the debacle in Camden, who would replace General Horatio Gates as the new commander of the Southern Continental Army? His name was Nathaniel Green, and it was a very, very wise choice. You know, I mentioned Greenville, South Carolina just a moment ago. Well, it turns out that Greenville, South Carolina is named after Nathaniel Green. Nathaniel Green had um, served under General George Washington at various battles. He, as a matter of fact, he's a Rhode Islander. Green has seen it all. But when he comes to South Carolina right away, it already helps that he is an astute observer in general. He, the, Nathaniel Green himself could be best described as one who is not missing out on anything. But he is very observant in how the Whigs and Tories are treating one another from within South Carolina. Matter of fact, I think he had even said a quote. Had, he had said when he arrived that he saw just how vicious Tories and Whigs were treating one another to where... If it had kept up, nobody would be left alive. In other words, both extremes are going at it to the point where if they don't sit down and talk things out, who's going to be left to pick up the pieces to carry on the fight? Did Francis Marion become a leader whom advocated barbaric activities to achieve military objectives? No. Thank heavens. You know, it's one thing to be a leader, but you've got to be able to um, set the tone for what's appropriate and not appropriate to tolerate. If you're going to have any kind of stability from within, which also means having respect uh, per leadership above. If you don't provide stability from within, um, from within the group you're commanding, then how do you expect those men above, below you to have respect for one another from within and from above. Well, how do you think George Washington uh, was able to install discipline? Remember, folks, when he arrived into a camp in Massachusetts not long after Joseph Warren died um, at Bunker Hill, Washington saw men who were willing to fight, but he but he saw men that were not the most uh, cleanly. Or the not, or the, what we would might think of as being um, savages. I mean, men who, yes, knew how to fight, but men who did not um, perhaps uh, take good care of themselves. So Washington went about making sure that they took uh, care of themselves by uh, by going about with proper hygiene, proper um, uh, etiquette. Uh, without doing all that, how do you maintain structure? Well, that's what Francis Marion is going to advocate. So, yes, thank heavens he does not, um, he is not going to promote uh, barbaric activity to achieve uh, personal uh, gain, um, not only for himself, but for his um, regiment. So, basically, Marion himself goes about, will go about forbading inhumane practices ranging from burning private homes, to displaying acts of prejudice and preventing his men from shooting and hanging Tories. There again, folks, we need to have some structure. 
We need to have discipline. Yes, you're angry. Yes, you want to get revenge, but there is a right way to go about achieving your objective, and there is a wrong way. Burning people's homes isn't going to solve the problem. Yes, you may not like what uh, John Smith might have done, but does it mean that you need to go burn his home to, to get back at the past wrong? No. So Marion, this is a good way to sum up Francis Marion right here. He's not a Charleston aristocrat, and, he's, and let alone he's not a hillbilly either. In other words, he's not a hillbilly from the backcountry, but he is someone who represents middle ground status. And by being somewhat of middle ground status, he is not um, favoring extremism from either side. He opposes it altogether, and he is basically, he, he represents the middle. In other words, he's not, um, you know, when someone's from middle ground, they're not favoring one side over the other, but he is also trying to go about engaging in warfare in the proper way. In other words, achieve the objectives, but do it without resorting to, um, without resorting to, uh, yes, burning homes, which means putting innocent civilians' lives at stake. Don't, um, don't um, capture innocent civilians just to um, meet a, a ransom. Don't, um, don't go to extremes in order to um, fulfill your objective. But in order to understand Marion's thinking behind this, or let alone his personal, individual personal character, we're gonna, um, it's going to require learning more about his past, which will be discussed in the next podcast. And, and in order to learn more about Marion's past, we're going to have to learn about his um, ancestral uh, roots. In other words, his ancestors who came before him, who left the old world, to establish new beginnings where freedom could be attained. So basically, uh, it's fair to say that Marion's ancestors who came over to uh, colonial America had um, endured improper um, treatment from those above. And, and the only way to avoid improper treatment was for them to, um, for his ancestors to leave and start a new life elsewhere where opportunities would be um, more advantageous. Well, we've covered a lot today, and I think we have a better understanding of just um, how extreme the situation now is in South Carolina, from basically from the people within the state itself. Now it's going to be up to Francis Marion and Thomas Sumter and Andrew Pickens and other leaders who... Um, are going to carry on the fight who have are left remain untouched to keep the fighting within South Carolina and to keep it from going further northward into North Carolina and Virginia by keeping the fighting in South Carolina this will um, keep the conflict within the confines of the state but it will also um, hopefully it will also backfire on the British in other words by not turning to Indians and individual Tories or let alone slaves, the British now are going to eventually see with time that not having other people on hand uh, will serve as a um, will uh, rep will serve as a um, reminder of um, of how they uh, burned bridges for um, 
that will in the end backfire on them. So uh, thank you for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Uh, For those of you um, in the United States, um, have a great Thanksgiving holiday. And for the rest of you all around the world, stay safe and uh, take care.